sleep up here. There we go. All right. Just seeing if you're listening. We are, we, we've got a task ahead of us this morning. All right. We've done, I went through all these seminary preaching classes and they said, the worst thing you can do as a preacher is bite off more than you can chew in the short amount of time you had. This morning, we did not listen to that advice. All right. We're going to take a big chunk of the story, and if we're going to cover the story of Joseph in seven weeks, which is our, our task here, there's going to be moments that we zoom in and we really get down deep into the story. That's what we did last week. And then there's going to have to be moments when we zoom out and take a, take a bigger look at a section of Joseph's life. And so that is what we're going to do this week. So you got to stay with me. We got to stay sharp here because I think that God has something to say to you. So if you're with me, say I'm with you. you. All right. That makes me feel better. I'll ask in 15 minutes. It'll be silent. (laughs) You know, last week I I preached on the story of Joseph and, uh, you know, a couple of you came up to me afterwards, uh, some emails, maybe some chatter on social media. I don't know. It said, we're not quite sure that, that Pastor Brian's qualified to preach on the story of Joseph, right? Some of you said that to me. It got really bitter and angry sometimes. Uh, you came to me, I'm not sure they qualified to preach. And, and they said, you said, I'm not sure you've taken the classes. I'm not sure you've read the books. I'm not sure you've done your research. And, uh, and so I just want to assure you this morning, I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to preach on the story of Joseph. I mean, not only I've read the books, right? I took the classes. I, I read this section of scripture. And has anyone ever heard of the play, the Joseph and the Amazing Tentacolor Dreamcoat? Do you know this play? Raise your hand. You see the lavish Broadway musical. You know that? I just want you to know, in 1998, right, I played Joseph in Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, all right? This is the Mustang News. I don't remember what it was called. My high school paper. And to rave reviews, all right? So there I got arrested by, my, by, the, by Potiphar's people. I'm there like this. I'm sure Joseph did that at some point, right? So doesn't that look like someone qualified to preach on the story of Joseph? I don't know. All right. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So let's get into it. Last week we talked about what do you do when God forgets? What do you do when God, or when it feels like God forgets you? What does it do when you feel, what's it like when you feel forgotten? And I said we took a real, a deep dive, right? We zoomed in. And we zoomed in on Joseph in prison. And we had this moment where Joseph interprets two dreams of his fellow prisoners, but one, the cupbearer to Pharaoh, gets really good news. And he's going to be released from prison. And Joseph makes this plea to the cupbearer. When you get out, remember me. And uh, the end of chapter 40 has this verse. And it says that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And we said last week, what do you do? What do you do when it feels like others have forgotten you? And what we said was, we said, when you feel forgotten, remember the God who never forgets you. That no matter how forgotten you feel in this world, and certainly all of us feel forgotten, that there is a God who created you and who loves you, who sees you, just like he saw Joseph in that prison. He sees you where you are, and he never forgets. So now as we come into chapters 41 through 45, and if you want to open up your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis is easy to find. It's the first book in your Bible. 
You could go to 41 and follow us along as we go through all of these chapters. It's a big chunk of the story. But here's the question. We asked, what do you do when you feel forgotten? Now the question is this. What about when you're remembered? It's important that we, that we uh, deal with those moments where we feel forgotten well as followers of Jesus. It's also important that we deal with the times when we're remembered really well. When you're remembered, it's the time when you feel like you're, you're on top. Things are going well. There's forward momentum. There's a promotion. There's a new position. There's a, a new surprise in life, a good thing, a new relationship. When you feel remembered and things are moving forward, they, who are you then? In fact, this is the question that as we get into Joseph's life, we're going to reflect on. And I think this is an important question for anyone to reflect on. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, this is a really important question for you. Who are you? When you go from powerless to in the presence of power to being in the place of power, who are you? Do you change? We've seen people change in those moments. I watch, uh, Lori and I have, have three children, and there's this power dynamic that happens in our house that when there is time to watch television or there is time to watch a tablet, whoever is holding that tablet and is able to tap the next video has the power, right? They have the power. And it's amazing the sorts of emotions and things. We spend half our parenting is trying to, to, to talk about how you should behave when your other sibling has power and control. And then when you get power and control and you're the one holding the tablet, how do you behave then, right? But I don't know that that ever leaves us. That whole having to deal with, with the dynamics of being in a place where I'm, in, I'm in, in, in the presence of someone who has power over me. Who am I then? Like, let's say you were merging on to Route 2 at the end of the service. And there's this person that's on Route 2. And they're in the lane. The nice thing to do would be to just maintain their speed and let you merge onto Route 2. But... You can see in your mirror that they are speeding up, going faster than they were going before. And now they're side by side with you and you start to slow down and they start to slow down and you speed up and they speed up. And it's almost like they're doing it intentionally. Who are you in that moment? And who are you two miles down the road when you go to merge onto 95 and all of a sudden they want to get over because they also want to take 95? Who are you in those Moments. That's the kind of thing we're talking about today. Because Joseph is about to go from the prison to the palace. He's about to go from being powerless to being in the presence of power to being in the place of power. And the one thing that is true about Joseph, and it's true for all of us, is that who you are is revealed. When you're in the presence of power and when you're in the place of power. It's easy to cry out to God, maybe easier to cry out to God when you feel powerless. 
But when you feel like there's somebody in power right in front of you, it's easy to take that allegiance from God and switch it to them. Or even more so, when things are going well and you're in a place of power, it's easy to forget God and do things on your own. So through these chapters, we're going to take a look at Joseph's progression and journey, and we're going to ask ourselves some questions, too, along the way. And there are two things that, that we learn here this morning that I know I need as I think about this, and you need it as well. Some of us might come into this morning and say, you know, I'm never really in the place of power. Yes, you are. There are friendships, there are family dynamics, there are places where, yeah, you may not be the CEO of the company, but there are places in your office where you have power. There's places in your classroom where you have power. There's all sorts of places where all of us have power. Who are you then? So here's the story. And here's where I, I, I hope we're able, to, we're able to stick together. Joseph's in prison. The cupbearer forgot him. And now we go to chapter 41 and things start to turn. I'm going to call chapter 41 the dream. Not the cupbearer's dream, not the baker's dream from prison, not even Joseph's dream. This dream happens to the ruler of all of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, we read these verses, right? After two whole years, and I don't want to rush past that because that is miserable. I mean, I don't know who you would be after you got the cupbearer, after you were a big part of getting the cupbearer out of prison, and then the cupbearer leaves, and he forgets you. And it's not, we said this last week, this is not it slipped the cupbearer's mind. He's not forgetting that, that he was in prison, and that Joseph interpreted a dream and got him out, and that Joseph asked him to mention him to the Pharaoh. This is office politics. It is not helpful to the cupbearer to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, there's this Hebrew guy down in your prison who interprets dreams. It's not helpful. So he says nothing. He's back in his position of power. Being the cupbearer to the king is a huge position of power. He is the right-hand man of the ruler of the entire land. If it's not politically advantageous to him to mention something, he's not going to mention, mention it. And Joseph sits for two years. And then Pharaoh has a dream that he was standing by the Nile. And maybe you know the, the, um, the story. If you've seen the musical, he sings it like Elvis. <laughs> he says that there were seven thin cows and seven fat cows, and the seven thin cows ate the fat cows, and then there were seven seven very thin stalks of grain, and then there were plump, fat stalks of grain, and the thin stalks of grain ate the fat, plump stalks of grain. And Pharaoh was very troubled by this dream. It was a vivid dream. It was clear to him that, that some sort of divine being was trying to get his attention. And when the cupbearer saw the Pharaoh was in distress, all of a sudden it was politi politically advantageous for him to mention, hey, there's a guy in prison who interprets dreams. 
So Joseph comes out of prison after two years of being forgotten. And I don't know about you, my devotion times in those two years would be tough. Be tough to feel like God's for me, and God's on my side, and God's working in my life. If I have this amazing moment with God and the cupbearer, and then I just sit for two more years. And yet it's remarkable to me who Joseph is in this moment. Because he comes now, and you can imagine, from the prison to the greatest room in the entire land of Egypt, one of the greatest kingdoms of the day. And here he sits with the, the leader of, of, of the world, so to speak, of his world for sure. And he's in his presence. And I don't know what the opulence of that, of that space looked like, but you can better believe that in that day, it was one of the nicest spaces that existed. And here he is before the Pharaoh and all this, this luxury. And he knows this is the guy that can get me out. If I impress this guy, I'm out of prison. I don't know about you, but this is the time to build myself up. I saw yesterday, uh, Lori and I were laughing. We saw, I saw that somebody said, how would you say I changed a light bulb on your resume? And a person responded and they said, I would say I single-handedly implemented a brand new environmental illumination system without any cost overruns or unnecessary hindrances. That's how you come into the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison and says this. He says, uh, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. You know what I would say? In my flesh, I would say, that's right, Pharaoh. I interpret dreams. You want someone who can take care of you? That's me, Joseph. Get these shackles off of me, and let's get it done. But that's not what Joseph says. Joseph answers Pharaoh and he says, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That's an incredible moment to me. Because there is the tension and the temptation for Joseph to say, yeah, it's me. And yet when Joseph is in the presence of power, he remembers God. And he interprets the dream. And he says, Pharaoh, the seven thin cows, the seven thin grains of wheat or the stalks of wheat, they are, they are, they're eating them fatter and the plumper versions of the same because you are going to have seven years of bumper crops and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And what you need to do is find someone wise who you can set over the bumper crop that will store the extra so that when the seven years of famine hit, not only you and your household, but all the people of the land will have food to eat. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea, and I'm choosing you. I mean, look at this. this is, he's in prison that morning. I think this all happens in one day. He's in prison. And then Pharaoh pulls him out of prison. He interprets the dream. And he says, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. He puts him second in charge. He's now the vice president of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. I love that. That's like Air Force Two, right? And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. It's amazing, that transformation. And Joseph, in the presence of power, stands strong. And he doesn't just do it in the moment that he interprets that dream. He's still in the palace, he's still in the kingdom. And Pharaoh gives him uh, a very prominent, the daughter of a very prominent person in his kingdom. Her name is Asenath. And Joseph marries Asenath. And I love it because Martin, who was singing up here today, his brother and his sister-in-law moved to Georgia, but they used to attend our church. You know what their names are? Joseph and Asenath. How do Joseph and Asenath find each other now? 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later. And so he has his wife, Asenath, and then they have sons, two sons. So before the year of the famine, two sons were born to Joseph. Now here's the pressure point. He's the only Hebrew in the Egyptian kingdom. I shouldn't say it that way. He's probably the only Hebrew that's in the royal palace. He's in the cabinet. He's on the staff. The pressure to assimilate has to be huge. And yet when Joseph names his children, he gives them Hebrew names. And he calls his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, for God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's household. And then he has a son named Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And when he's in the presence of power, rather than give in, rather than assimilate, he stands strong. It says, no, 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 God interprets dreams. And I'm going to name my children in such a way that everybody knows I'm only here because of him. So that's the dream. And then we move to chapter 42. And something incredible happens in chapter 42. In chapter 42, the famine has struck the land. And sure enough, just like God said through Joseph, there's no food. Joseph's father and his 10 brothers, who he has not seen in about 13 years, or his 11 brothers, I'm sorry, who he has not seen in 13 years are back at home. And they're out of food. Joseph's father, Jacob, hears that there's food in the land of Egypt. And so he says to, to his sons, he says, 10 of you go, but I'm keeping Benjamin behind. And that is significant because Benjamin was the youngest. But it's not just that Benjamin was the youngest. Like many men in that day in the ancient world, Jacob had multiple wives. Joseph's, husband, Joseph's father had multiple wives. And the wife with whom he felt the closest had two sons. 
one named Joseph and one named Benjamin. And he loved those boys. And one of them, in Jacob's mind, has been dead for over a decade. And so he says to his brothers, his sons, he says, you 10 go buy grain in Egypt. Benjamin's staying with me because the last thing I need to happen is for Benjamin to die too. And so the brothers, they pack up everything. They take their money. They go to Egypt and they come and they bow down before the person in charge of giving out the grain. And who is it? It's their brother Joseph, but they don't recognize him. He was a, he was a, a young man, a young boy when they sold him off. Now he's this man, second in charge of Egypt. It's the last place you would expect to find Joseph, who they sold into slavery. But Joseph, of course, recognizes them, and they bow down, and the text says that Joseph remembers the dream. Do you remember his dream when he was a young man? That the stars would be bowing down to him? That the, that the, that the grain would be bowing down to him? He remembers the dream. And now he's in the place of power. You got family members like this? I mean, they just, every chance they get to put you down, to leave you out, to say something to someone else in the family about you, they take it. And these are the brothers that not only did they hate Joseph when Joseph lived with them as a young man, but they actually threw him into a pit to kill him and then thought better about that and sold him into slavery. Now here, 13 years later, the tables have turned. Joseph is in the complete place of power. They have no idea who he is. Who is Joseph going to be in this moment? That's the question. And for a moment, it looks like Joseph gives in to that temptation because Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you all are spies. And they say, we are not spies. And he says, yes, you are. And he takes them and he holds them in custody. And they start explaining, we have a father, we have a, a younger brother at home, we're trying to buy grain for our families so that we can, we can survive. And he's, Joseph says he's not buying it. He continues to insist that they are spies. And he says, he says, I will only believe you if you bring your youngest brother to come and see me. Joseph has no idea if he can trust these gentlemen, his brothers. Why would he? And he wants to know, is his father alive? These are all his half-brothers. Is his full-blooded brother, Benjamin, alive? Benjamin must not have been on social media because he could have checked that. Are they there? And he has no idea if what they're saying is true. Yeah, we have a father, we have a, a brother back home. And all of a sudden, the brothers start talking. Just picture being Joseph and hearing this. They said to one another, we're guilty. Do you know why this is happening to us, that this guy thinks that we're spies? Because remember Joseph, we sold him into slavery. There's blood on our hands. And now we're reaping the benefits of that. He begged us and we did not listen. And this is why this distress has come to, come to them. And Reuben, he says to his brothers, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? That's Joseph. Didn't I tell you not to do this? But you didn't listen. In. Listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they did not know, listen to this, they did not know that Joseph understood them, that there was an interpreter standing between them. 
And look at Joseph's reaction. When he sees the guilt his brothers are holding, he turns and he weeps. But yet he holds Simeon, one of his brothers, back and says, go and bring back your youngest brother with me, with you. If you don't bring your youngest brother back, you will get no food. And he gives his brother the grain that they wanted. Right? He, could have, he could have easily gotten so much revenge. But you know what else he does? All the money they brought, he puts it back in their sacks. So they go home with grain for the family and all their money. They get home and they start freaking out. They accidentally gave us a refund. They gave us all our money back. This guy is going to be, he thought we were spies. Now he thinks we're thieves. This is going to be terrible. And Jacob, their father, starts to lose it. And he says, what have you all done to me? You got rid of Joseph. Joseph is dead. Now Simeon's locked up. Now you're telling me that they think we're thieves and I have to send Benjamin with you? My beloved youngest son, Benjamin, I have to send him with you if we're going to get any more grain. And sure enough, by Genesis chapter 43, they are out of grain and they've got to go back. And he says, you nine, go back, get Simeon, bring, Jane, bring grain. And Judah says to his father, we're not going without Benjamin. You don't understand. This guy is the real deal. And he wasn't bluffing. We show up without Benjamin. We're all in big trouble. So Jacob says, fine, take them. And they go back to Egypt and they arrive and they find when, that when they show up, they're invited to dinner at the house of the second in command person in Egypt. And they say to themselves, yeah, this is it. We're done for. They show up at the house. They go right up to the steward of the house. And they say, listen, listen, just listen to us. You got to get to hear this. We did not steal the money. All right. We got home. It was in our sacks. There was grain. There was money. We didn't steal the money. And look, we brought gifts. Our dad gave us gifts to bring. And we also brought a double portion of money. So we've got the money that we owed you last time. We're going to give it back to you. And then also uh, we brought extra money for the grain this time. We just want you to know we're trustworthy people. Uh, we're, we're not trying to steal anything from Egypt. So here is everything, gifts, money, whatever you need. We've got it. We can take out a loan, whatever we got to do to make this right. And Joseph comes home, and it's amazing. The steward says to them, what are you talking about? I got all your money. You paid the last time you were here. And how confusing that must have been for them to have all their money back and have the steward saying, no, no, your books are good. Joseph comes to the house, and he gets the presents, and they bow down to him again. And he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? Is my dad alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And it was all he could take. Joseph runs out of the room. It would have been a, a big deal 
to have the second in command of Egypt weeping openly in front of these, these Hebrew commoners. And so he runs to his room and he weeps there. Joseph's not done trying to figure out if he can trust his brothers, though. I mean, there's a lot of trust that needs to be rebuilt. He tests them a second time. Simeon comes back. So now you've got all 11 of them, grain in their, in their bags. Joseph tells his people, put all the money back in, all of it, like the money from the first time and the money from the second time, put it back in their bags, and also take this silver cup of mine, put it in the bag of the youngest. And they start journeying home. And Joseph says to his men, go chase them down. I think one of them stole a cup of mine. And whoever has it, I want you to bring them back. And so the men chase Joseph's brothers down and they say, one of you has stolen the silver cup of the second in charge of Egypt. And they said, no, 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 we did not steal anything. And they open the bags and there's the money. And they said, and they say, no, no, one of you has a silver cup. And they say, okay, whoever has the silver cup, they're the one that's in trouble. The rest of you can go, but they're the one that's in trouble. They open up all the sacks, the money's there, and sure enough, the cup is in Benjamin's sack. And they said, all right, we're taking this one. The rest of you go home. <laughs> and they're like, we're, we, we're not going home without this guy. I mean, we, we may as well kill our father. So they all go back to Egypt. And they plead with Joseph. And it's amazing as we move from 45, 44 to 45. Judah, Joseph's brother who had the great idea to sell him into slavery, now stands before Joseph and begs Joseph to take him as his slave. Don't take Benjamin, he says. Take me. And what a moment that must have been for Joseph. Judah, who said, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery, is now standing in front of Joseph, his brother, saying, don't take Benjamin. Take me. He says this, he says, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And that's it for Joseph. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He still doesn't trust. But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And it's amazing, isn't it? Joseph had the power to do whatever he wanted to these guys. Kill them. Put them into slavery. Deny them grain. And instead, by the end of chapter 45, 
he moves his entire family to Egypt, to an area called Goshen, and they live in one of the best parts of the land. Protected, safe, well-fed, blessed. I don't know about you, but if I think of myself and the temptations that come into play in these moments for Joseph, being in the presence of Pharaoh and the opportunity to, to just wilt just a little, just twist the truth a little bit to make himself look better, get himself out of prison, even once he's in power, in a good place, to, to, to take some Egyptian names for his children, to honor the Egyptian gods, but yet he still honors Yahweh, his God. Although Yahweh doesn't even have that name yet, but the God, the Lord... And then when he's in power and his brothers are in front of him, the opportunity to even the score, the opportunity to get revenge, the opportunity just to let them know how much better he is than them, at the very least, to lord it over them, who he is and who he's become in spite of everything that they did to him. But Joseph stands strong in the presence of power and he serves graciously in the place of power. See, well, how does Joseph serve graciously when he's testing his brothers and doing all of these things? Let's not lose sight of the fact that Joseph is fine trying to figure out what is true and what is not true in a day and age when it was impossible to do it any other way than take somebody's word for it or make the trip yourself. And this is his way of feeling them out. He doesn't know if he can trust them, but he gets answers about Benjamin. He gets answers about his father. And once he has the answer, he blesses them tremendously. And even throughout the, the, the entire narrative, giving them the grain, giving them all their money back, returning the money again for these people who had wronged him. How do you do that? Like, how do you become that sort of person? Do you just try really hard? Is that what you do? Is it mindfulness? It's like a, a bunch of, you know, Harvard Business Extension leadership classes, and then you finally you become this person? We all know people who were, who were in a place of, of uh, in a place, they, they, you, they were like with you, you know, that friend you had when you were growing up, and then all of a sudden you got to middle school, and they were a little bit more popular than you, and you got to high school, and they were a little bit more popular to you than, than you, and that relationship changed a little bit, and all of a sudden you, got, you guys were always best of friends, and now they had the power dynamic, and it, they wouldn't even look at you or sit next to you or talk to you because it might somehow negatively impact their, the perception that other people have around them. You know what that feeling's like. How do you not become that person? Or you started, you were new hires together at the company and you talked about how you complained about the leadership and you talked about how you would never be like them and you would do things differently. And then your colleague, their career kind of took off and you kind of stayed and you were a part of the team and they were leading the team. And all of a sudden there was that rapport that you had, that relationship with you had, it was all gone. They had a new circle of executives that they spent time with and they didn't spend time with you anymore because to do so might change that perception. How do you stop from being that kind of person? Is it just trying harder? 
In the world, it is. But I want to remind you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have access to a power that allows you to stand strong in the presence of power and allows you to be gracious in the place of power that people who do not follow Jesus do not have access to. And if you want to know what Joseph's secret is, it's not that he was just a really good guy and he read a bunch of good articles in prison that kept him in the right place. The person who recognizes it most clearly is Pharaoh himself. Joseph interprets his dream, and this is what Pharaoh says to his servants. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And I think when we come out of this story, the thing that you and I have to be reminded about is that in the presence of power or in the place of power, if you want to consistently be the person that God calls you to be, you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that it works. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being better. It's not about just just picking yourselves up. It is about being empowered by the Spirit of God. And because Joseph is empowered by the Spirit of God, it allows him to go from dreamer to the pit to near death, to slavery, to head of Potiphar's household, to the bottom of prison, to second in charge of Egypt, and be the same person almost the entire time. Because it's not him doing the work, it's the Spirit of God inside of him doing the work. And one of the biggest mistakes that you and I make as followers of Jesus Christ is we rely on ourselves to be good. And that's an impossible task for us to handle. Our hearts are sinful. Prophet Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. And when we rely on ourselves, when we're in the presence of power or the place of power, we will compromise. And some of you are in places right now. You can think of them where there is temptation to not be the person God calls you to be because of power dynamics. And I want to remind you this morning, I think there's two things God wants us to take from this story. The first of is when you are in the presence of power, the spirit of God empowers you to stand strong. The spirit of God empowers Joseph to say, no, 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 I don't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams. Not your Egyptian gods, not all those idols you have. I mean, the one true God. And when I had children in your kingdom, I named them after that God. Not your gods, my God. It's the Spirit of God that empowers you to stand strong. I don't know about you. For me, this is a really difficult one. I'll tell you how it affects me. I know that if I go out into the world and tell people, hey, I'm a Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian. Some people have some thoughts about that. And it feels like they have the power. And so it's really easy for me to compromise and hedge on that. Try to keep that quiet. I'll tell you where it shows up for me. I'll be honest with you. Some of you know, I I talked about before, I do some consulting work outside of the church. I do consulting work in in business places. When I fill out my LinkedIn profile, 
there's a part of me that says, do I leave pastor on there? Because I know some people are going to see that and say, pastor, that doesn't, what's he going to help us with in our business? Or pastor, I don't, we don't work with people that think that way. And I know it's real. Because a couple of weeks ago, we were looking to do a, a feedback survey for the employees at Mount Hope. We have our two church congregations and a pretty good-sized school. We have like 80 employees. And we said, let's do a feedback survey. Let's hear from our employees, see what it's like to work at Mount Hope. And someone gave me a reference. And they said, you contact this company. They did this for our business. They were great. We did an email. They said, sure, we'd love to talk to you. 30 minutes before our initial meeting, I got an email. And they said, we did some digging into Mount Hope. And we saw you're affiliated with the Assemblies of God. We went to the Assemblies of God website. And we, we read these position papers. They're all about gender, sexual orientation. And they put them all in the email. The language was professional, but very strong. There is no way we're working with you. So it exists. Two weeks ago, someone had contacted me, a CFO of a company, about me working with them. He said, what's the deal with this pastor thing? On the initial call. And I said, just hoping, right? And I said, I said, um, well, are you a part of a church? Because if he said yes, I would say, oh, thank goodness. But of course he went, no, I'm just curious. What do I do? So I told him about my role here and what I do and all the different things. He sent me an email later saying they were going to wait for now. I'm sure there were other reasons, but I can't help but wonder. And you have it too. You're going to go back to class. You're going to go back to work. And someone's going to say, what'd you do this weekend? Does this make the list? I know what you did yesterday will make the list. But does, does this hour make the list of, yeah, you know what I did? I went to church on Sunday morning. It was great. Preacher talked too long, did way too many verses, but it was fine. Who are you? I can't stand strong on my own. I need the Holy Spirit. In those moments, I have to pray. And I say, Spirit, help me. Help me answer this question well. Help me do this the way that you called me to. Your coworker is going through a difficult time. Do you go to them and do you say something like, listen, I believe there is a God that sees you and knows you and loves you and that answers prayer and, oh, and I will pray for you that God will be at work in your life? Or do you give the same my thoughts are with you message that everyone else gives? And if you're giving the my thoughts are with you message that everyone else gives, why do we hedge on that? I think that's an important question for us to ask. And I'm sharing that as somebody who's as tempted as anybody to hedge in those moments. But God's spirit gives you, empowers you to stand strong. Here's the other thing that God's spirit does. When you are in power, when you are in the place of power, the Spirit of God empowers you to serve graciously. You know, when you were a new hire, you didn't take any days off to build your career. 
You, you, you missed birthdays, you missed graduations, you missed sporting events to build your career and to get where you are. Now you're hiring these punks out of college who think they deserve all this vacation and all these times off and they don't know what hard work is. And so someone comes to you and they, she says, my sister had a baby, the whole family's gathering together. I'm, I'm gonna need a few days off to go. And you're thinking to yourself, I never took time off for this kind of stuff. My siblings had all sorts of kids and I saw them at Christmas and I saw them at Thanksgiving. I didn't have to take time off. Who are you in that moment? Are you gracious? Well, one that I think we probably all feel in some extent, it's what Joseph felt. There was a part of your childhood that wasn't good. Maybe it was your parents. I, I don't know who it was. Let's say your parents did not treat you well. And it's been hard for many years. And now they're older. And they didn't take care of you, but they need someone to take care of them. And they're looking to you. Who are you in that moment when you have the power? There's all sorts of places in life where all of a sudden the dynamics shift. And it can be as simple as we hold the space in the lane that can keep people away, that can box them out. It could be as serious as those deep-seated hurts among family and friends and work relationships. You know, I'm reminded that our Savior had places and moments where he was in power and when he was in the presence of power. And when Jesus was on this earth, we can learn a lot from how he behaved. The Gospel of John says that the night before Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples. And he's in power. He's God in the flesh. And you know who's in this group? The person that that night is going to betray him and hand him over to the Roman officials and the person who is going to deny him three times while he goes to the cross. And when Jesus recognizes that he's in the place of power in that room, the text says that he shows his disciples the full extent of his love. And what does he do? He washes their feet. The most menial task that could be done. He serves graciously when he's in power. Literally the next day, Jesus stands before Pilate, who is the Roman official in charge. And Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me because Jesus is silent. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And who is Jesus in the presence of power? Filled with the Spirit? You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Your Savior models this for you. That when he is in power, he serves graciously. And when he's in the presence of power, he stands strong. I'm going to invite our worship team forward as we, as we prepare to close this morning. 
I don't know where it is in your life, but there's somewhere in these, in these verses and in these chapters where you can see that you have the temptation either to wilt in the presence of power or to wield power without graciousness, to lord it over people. It's an election year. Aren't we all fired up about that? I promise you we're going to see all sorts of people who are willing to change the things they usually say and act differently because power is on the line. It happens every time. All of a sudden, the things people are posting on social media, they get a little harsher. The conversations that people are having they get a little more intense. And the question is, who does God want us to be in the midst of all of these things? Whether it's, it's the political system or whether it's our personal lives and the interactions that we're having with one another. Who does he want us to be? And there's some place in your life where God is calling you to stand strong for him, even in the presence of power. Or he's calling you to use power in a very gracious, loving way, the same way he has done for you. Because by the way, Jesus didn't wait until you fixed your life to die for you. The text says that while he was a sinner in the book of while we we were sinners in the book of Romans, it says, that Christ died for us. He came and found us at our very lowest when we were furthest from him and gave his life for you. He says, I expect you to do the same for others. But you can't do it on your own. To be faithful before power and in power, you need to be empowered by the Spirit of God. And as we close this morning, I'm not asking you to make a promise. I'm not asking you to, to jot something down that you'll do differently tomorrow. I'm asking you, would you take the moments that we have left together, these last few minutes, and seek after the Spirit of God. Some of you are saying, I don't know how to be empowered by the Spirit of God. All you have to do is seek and ask. That's your job. All you have to do is seek and say, Holy Spirit, you, you have my life. You've all of me. And I'm asking that you would come and you would fill me and that you would empower me to do the things that, that I'm called to do. Because there's no good thing that we can do without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there are amazing things that God wants to do through you as he fills you and uses you. And if you're the kind of person that said, listen, I've tried to be better. I've tried to fix it. I've tried to do it right. But over and over again, I keep failing. Could it be that this is what's missing? the empowerment and the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. All you have to do is seek it. And you ask for it today. And you get up tomorrow and you ask for it again. I love what Gene said. You welcome the Holy Spirit in. And you welcome him into your life for today. You get up tomorrow and you welcome him into your life for tomorrow. And you get in situations with your boss at work and in your mind you're saying, I'm welcoming you, Holy Spirit, into this room. Come and fill me. Help me to do the thing in this moment that God wants me to do. So would you bow your head and would you close your eyes? And would you, as we sing, and would you, as we have these moments, 
Would you seek after the Holy Spirit? And would you ask the Holy Spirit, come, fill me, fill me and use me, empower me to do the thing that you want me to do. Some of you have big things ahead of you right now, places of power, places where you're in the presence of power and you need the Holy Spirit's filling so that you do exactly what God's calling you to do. There's no doubt in my mind that if Joseph wilts in the presence of Pharaoh, if Joseph gets revenge on his brothers, tries to even the scorecard, this story has a very different ending. God would still preserve his people, the Israelites, but he'd have to do it another way. In the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Joseph is who God wants him to be in these moments, and God uses him and works through him. If you want to be the kind of person that God uses and works through, then you need the filling of the Holy Spirit. So would you ask today? Some of you will stand in your seats, stand where you are. And yet I want to tell you that these altars are a place that are open to physically come. There's something good about physical movement to come and to kneel or to stand at this altar and to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you for the things that are ahead. Would you have the courage today to come and ask for that? Holy Spirit, we welcome you into these moments. Would you move among us? Would you work among us? Would you fill us? Would you empower us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Would you stand and let's sing this song? And if you are in a place where you want to come and move and be here and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you, then come and pray and be in this place and ask God to move.